0: God has created and designed this world in a way in such a way that living things naturally grow. Okay? All organisms, whether plants or animals or people grow until they reach maturity. Case in point, do you realize that you were once a single cell? You were. (laughs) At the moment of conception, you existed as one singular cell inside your mother's womb. And from that time on, you have multiplied exponentially until you are what you are today. A complex living person comprised of approximately 37 trillion cells. And if you're still not, if you're not still growing up, Maybe you're growing out, (laughs) or uh, maybe your muscles are growing, or or more, more likely for all of us, we're still growing in knowledge, or reason, or wisdom, and so we're still developing in many different ways. We are living, and thus, we are growing in some ways. That's the way God designed us. Such is also the case, I believe, with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God lives, and thus it grows. The kingdom started small with one single first century Jewish rabbi, and it has grown, is growing, and will continue to grow on into eternity. It grows in number, it grows in reach, it grows in influence, and it grows in strength. And most importantly, it grows in bringing glory to the king of the Kingdom. We're going to read a passage today from the Gospel of Luke that I believe illustrates this. How amazing the glory of the kingdom is, how powerfully the glory of the kingdom grows, and how pervasive the glory of the kingdom will become. And the implications for our lives are limitless. If you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 We'll be beginning in verse 10 today, which is on page 872, if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you. This passage has a bit of everything that we've seen recently. It's got a story, it's got a miracle, got some teaching, got some parables, all kinds of stuff. But it makes a clear point to us about God's kingdom. Would you please pray as we begin, pray pray with me that God's kingdom would expand in our hearts and minds today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look into your word, that your spirit would teach us that we would grow today to know you more, to love you more, to follow you more. You are so worthy of our lives, God, and we want to honor you. And so as we come, please take our hearts, seal them for you, for your cause and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 13, we find Jesus still making his way towards Jerusalem. It was getting late in Jesus' life and ministry. His death was rapidly approaching. And as we move into verse 10 here in, in chapter 13, we're going to find Jesus in a very familiar situation. Okay? He's in a synagogue. He's teaching and someone needed his help. Okay? Read with me in verse 10. It says, Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, let's stop there and just get a little bit of context here. Synagogues. If you don't know what a synagogue was, synagogues were local Jewish places of worship, like they many are today, still today. And in many ways, a synagogue service was quite similar to a a church's worship service. They had singing and praying, and then someone would get up and teach or preach from God's word. And every Sabbath or, or Saturday... For the Jews, devout Jews, would gather at the synagogue to worship. But at this synagogue, on this day, the people who gathered were in for a very special treat. Okay? They wouldn't just hear from the word of God. They were going to hear directly from God on earth. And they would witness a great miracle and see someone's life change forever. So Jesus comes, he visits this synagogue, and as a popular rabbi, he was invited to give the message. But as he was talking, we saw this, he noticed someone out of the corner of his eye. Okay, so he's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, verse 11. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So there's this woman who was obviously physically distressed and troubled. Luke says that she was bent over, so there was probably spine issues or back issues. She was permanently slumped forward. She couldn't straighten herself to stand. She couldn't stand up straight or sit up straight. She couldn't even lie down straight. Every step she took would have been extremely painful. If you've ever had back issues in your life, you know how debilitating they can be. They just rack your whole body. About a year and a half ago, I hurt my back bending down to pick up my newborn son. And I I was flat on my back for a couple of days, just from extreme pain. I couldn't move. And so I've been going to a chiropractor lately, and and he talks about how the nervous system of your entire body actually runs through your spinal column, through the spinal column cord that's in your spine. And so if your spine is healthy, it's the right curve, it's, everything's flowing right, everything tends to work much better in your body, not just your back, Hey, your, your immune system, your respiratory system, your muscle and, and bone health. But on the other hand, if your spine is messed up, even in the slightest, it can create havoc, pain, and numbness, sickness, Weakness, fatigue, even early death. And the woman in this story obviously had some kind of extreme back ailment. It was chronic. She had had it for 18 years. No doctor could cure her. And this debilitating condition had likely ruined much of her life. She wouldn't have been able to work She wouldn't have been able to take care of a family. she had just been disabled, and she wouldn't have been able to be a useful member of society. But it gets worse. Luke points out that this woman's disability wasn't merely physical. Her condition, it says, had been caused by an evil spirit, a, a demon, an angel gone bad. It says that she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. So she had been possessed by a demon who caused her disability. Now, immediately, in our westernized, desensitized, naturalistic minds, alarm bells go off, right? And we hear about something like that. And our culture believes that angels and demons and all these spiritual things are just figments of our imagination. That they don't exist. And and sicknesses and physical ailments are definitely not caused by evil spirits. That sounds so primitive and barbaric or archaic of an idea. We think we know better now. But really, it all comes down to our basic beliefs and presuppositions about reality. What is our world really like? If there is no such thing as the supernatural, no God, no devil, no angels, no heaven, no hell, then absolutely, spirits never have or never will cause physical problems. But, if God exists, which we of course believe he does, if God exists... And the the supernatural world exists, and the spiritual realm, and and good and evil exist, then it makes total sense that these demons would be active in many ways in our world, even to this day. And there is no reason to believe that demons cannot cause disabilities. We've gotten smarter and wiser about some things as a society. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, I think we've collectively become stupid. Willingly so. Now, are all disabilities or diseases caused by demons? Absolutely not. Okay? The Bible never claims anything like that. Do all demons cause physical problems? Again, no, not necessarily. But, do some physical ailments have spiritual causes? According to the Bible, yes, they do. And do some evil spirits wreak havoc on people's bodies? Absolutely. They do. That was certainly the case here with this poor woman. She is in a desperate place. Painfully crippled by a cruel and evil being who is completely bent on her destruction. And when Jesus saw her that day in the synagogue, he did something remarkable. He didn't just cast a pity-filled glance her way. He didn't just make a mental note to check up on the woman later to see how she was doing. He didn't think, oh, I wish I could help her, but it would just be so disruptive right now. No, Jesus clearly had deep compassion for this woman, and it moved him to act. He actually interrupted his own talk in the synagogue, called out to the woman, and told her to make her way down to him. Ma'am, please, come see me right now. Yeah, yeah, just come on down. Verse 12 says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. He called her over to himself. I imagine at this point, people were nervously glancing around, like, what in the world is Jesus doing? Okay, this does not happen. This is not normal. People don't just interrupt talks in the synagogue. You can't just do whatever you want in a service on the Sabbath. It's disruptive. And, and besides, why her? Really, what does Jesus want to have to do with this sick, demon-possessed woman? But Jesus had compassion. And he didn't care what those around might have been thinking. He had determined that he would help this woman. And these man-made traditions that people had would not stand in his way. Besides, what he was about to do was going to back up and bolster the power of his words anyway. His actions were about to back up the power of his words. They were reinforce what he was teaching about. And what we are going to see through this miracle that he does here is what the people of Jesus' day should have seen. And that is that Jesus displayed the glory of God's kingdom through his compassionate power. Through his compassionate miracles, Jesus testified to the glory of his coming kingdom. He displayed the glory of the kingdom. Check out what he does. Okay, verse 12. Again, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. This was an absolute miracle. Just consider what this miracle would have involved. You'll see how incredible it is. 18 years of atrophy, arthritis, fusion, scarring, tension, pain, erased in an instant. You know how crazy that is? Luke says that she was made straight immediately. There is no delay, no healing process. It just happened. Jesus, the great physician, reached into this woman's muscles and tendons and bones and nerves and supernaturally corrected all that had gone wrong. He was like the ultimate chiropractor here. This, and really, this could be no mere man doing this miracle. This was the creator God at work within his creation. There was no other reasonable explanation. And since we know that there was an evil spirit involved as well, It means that Jesus was also exercising his complete sovereign control over the spiritual world. Casting out the demon that was in this woman, never to be allowed to return again. And as we've seen time and time again in Luke, demons have some power. But compared to Jesus, they got zilch. This one didn't even put up a fight. Just took off. This woman, just put yourself in her shoes. She would have felt every part of her body being healed instantly. All the pain, gone. All the oppression, gone. All the marginalization that society had put her under, gone. She'd be able to be accepted again. She'd be able to work again and play again, to live again, enjoy life again. She, it was just such an incredible transformation that Jesus worked in her life instantly. And it says, Jesus said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. She wasn't just healed. She was freed. So how'd this woman respond to Jesus' compassion? How she should have. Verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And What did she do? She glorified God. She recognized that this miracle that had just happened to her was a gift from God. It was only God's power that could heal her in this way. And so she began to publicly and audibly glorify God in the synagogue. She must have just been overcome with emotion, probably crying with joy. And between the sobs and maybe some squeals of delight, She shouted out her gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. And it's in the middle of this scene and we see a very different, shocking response. Verse 14 says this. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Well, every party needs a pooper, right? (laughs) Why was this guy so upset? I think it's probably because he saw Jesus as a threat. Jesus had come into a synagogue, and he thought he was a threat to him. Part of my responsibility as a pastor here at Calvary is to always make sure that this pulpit is filled. Okay, So even when I'm away, okay, I have to find someone who can replace me, who can speak for me. We did that last week, and, and you're so blessed to have Lynn speak with you last week. But that's part of my job. And if I ask someone to come and speak in my absence, and then found out that someone came in, and they started preaching something that was in direct opposition to my teaching. I'd be upset, to say the least. He, he'd be contradicting me, and he'd obviously be confusing you. It's my responsibility to help look out for that. And I imagine that this is somewhat how this man felt here. He was the ruler of the synagogue, it says. He had to watch out for his congregation. And he had likely been the one to invite Jesus to come and speak that day. And so when Jesus came in, started shaking up the status quo, perhaps even contradicting what he had been teaching about the Sabbath, this man got worried and upset. Even angry. Luke says he was indignant. And he thought he was indignant for a good reason. After all, he was protecting God's holy Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Over the years, people had interpreted this law the best they could, but when it came to the Sabbath, they had gone too far as Jesus exemplified many times. They had decided, for example, that three types of medical work were acceptable on the Sabbath. Birthing a baby, doing a circumcision, or saving someone's life. Everything else was off limits, apparently including miraculous healings. Healing a back or a spine wasn't crucial enough to make the cut. So it could wait till Sunday. We saw a very similar story back in Luke 6, where Jesus healed in his synagogue on a Sabbath, but this time it was a man with a withered hand. You remember the story? In the story, Jesus challenged the religious leaders around him, said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And the religious leaders had thought that they had a third option. They thought they could do nothing. And that would be okay. It could wait. But as John MacArthur points out, refusal to do good was tantamount to doing evil. They thought they were doing good by ignoring people in need on the Sabbath. But Jesus saw right through their selfish apathy and called it what it was. Evil. Yes, people were to avoid doing regular or unnecessary work on the Sabbath to keep it holy. But here is the point that Jesus wanted to get across. Loving others sacrificially was never intended to be against the law. Never. Jesus was not breaking the law in Luke 6, nor was he here in Luke 13. He was only breaking man's incorrect interpretation of the law. An interpretation that justified them not loving other people. That comes out even clearer here in chapter 13, as this indignant ruler directs his ire not towards Jesus but towards the healed woman, along with everyone else in the synagogue. Did you see that? said the, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. He thought Jesus was the one breaking the law and leading people astray, but he took out his anger on everyone else who needed healing sadly exposing his lack of compassion and love for those in need. As you might imagine Jesus didn't take too kindly to that. This guy got bent out of shape, and Jesus just shook his head. When am I going to get through to these people? Read what he says in verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You get what Jesus is saying here? He's pointing out just the, the ridiculous inconsistencies of the leader's position. And they claimed that it was perfectly acceptable... To let their animals get a drink on the Sabbath. To do good for their pets or their beasts of burden. And so it was. Okay? Jesus wasn't saying that they were wrong to do this. Okay? It would have been wrong to let their animals die of thirst. That would have been wrong. Jesus' issue is with their hypocrisy. They saw this as okay, but helping people in need as not okay. And Jesus just gave a great little play on words here to illustrate this. He, he can actually compared the disabled woman to one of these animals who was tied up and thirsty, needing water. Did you see that comparison he made? Verse 16 said, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Satan had bound up this poor woman, tied her to a feeding trough for 18 years. He had oppressed her, disabled her, pained her, ruined her life. And Jesus is like, I have the power to untie those ropes and lead her to water. She so desperately needs water, and you would refuse to let her have it. See the hypocrisy? The synagogue ruler had said, there are six days in which work ought to be done. But then Jesus responded, ought not this woman be freed from Satan on God's day. What a masterful response. No wonder that his opponents had nothing to say. It says in verse 17, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. They're silenced. And whether or not We've been directly oppressed by Satan in our lives. Without Jesus, we have all been bound in our sin by Satan, hopeless and destined to die. Did I have thirst for Jesus? Only Jesus has the power to break our bonds, to free us from them forever. And he can do this for us today because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were caught fast in the devil's traps, Jesus came to earth, lived, died, and rose again. And when that tomb cracked open, Satan's power was shattered. For all eternity. Now. If we only come to him in faith. Turning from our sins. He will loose our bonds today. Isn't that good news? I implore you. If you have not done this. To do so today. Because you desperately need Jesus. And his living water. You desperately need him. Let him free you. Let him save you. Let him satisfy you. You can run to him now. If you'd you'd like to talk about this, I'd love to speak with you more after the service. There's nothing more important you can do than this. You can find a glorious transformation of your life today. All because of Jesus. This was a glorious transformation for the disabled woman, that's for sure. And and she automatically gave glory to God. And many others are, who are around watching were just blown away by Jesus and his glorious works. And finish verse 17 with me. It says, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done him. This was the glory of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. He was doing glorious things, and people were glorifying him. You could say it was a preview of coming attractions. His kingdom would be a kingdom of compassion and power. Those two things alone aren't worth very much. Together, they're amazing. We should take this to heart. Our king, Jesus, is a compassionate king. He's a compassionate king. He notices us in our need and in our pain, and he beckons us to him. And We should remember that our king is not only compassionate, our king is a powerful king. He not only wants to save us, he is mighty to save us. His compassion and his power displayed the incredible glory of his kingdom. Now you might think, well, I don't see the kingdom talked about in this story. So, so why do I say that this event displayed the glory of the kingdom? And it's because of what Jesus says immediately following this event. Look with me in verse 18. It says, he said, therefore, therefore, okay, it's because of what just happened. Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Therefore, so something about the miracle that he just performed prompted Jesus to talk about his kingdom. And I think it's because that this miracle was a sign of things to come in the kingdom. Like I just said, it's a preview of things coming. Philip Ryken says, in and of itself, the woman's healing was something small. The personal deliverance of a solitary individual... Yet this was the beginning of something much bigger. The woman's salvation contained the seed of the devil's defeat and the glory of God's kingdom. And now whether or not this is exactly what Jesus was thinking, the point of his parable can be easily seen. And that is that the glory of God's kingdom will grow from insignificant beginnings to great significance. Significance. The glory of the kingdom will grow from insignificance to greatness to reach the world. And in this moment, Jesus realized that right after he healed this woman and she was glorifying God and people were talking about what he had just done, he had a prime opportunity to help people understand the kingdom. He knew that there was likely confusion regarding the kingdom. What was the kingdom? What will it be like? When will it come? I think we wonder many of the same things today. What is the kingdom of God? And the answer is that the kingdom of God refers to the reign and rule of God. Right now, it's a spiritual kingdom over our hearts. One day, it will be a physical kingdom over the universe. That's the kingdom of God in a nutshell. So whenever someone acknowledges Jesus as their king, they join the kingdom. When you acknowledge Jesus as your king, you become part of the kingdom. And the rule of God extends over your hearts and it grows from there. In our own hearts, spreading to the hearts of those around us. And one day, the kingdom will expand over everything and everyone. The growth of the kingdom is what Jesus was talking about with this parable here in Luke 13. The growth of the kingdom. He said, therefore, verse 18 again, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air may nest in its branches. Now, Jesus often talked about the kingdom in this way, giving us little glimpses of the kingdom through parables. And the glimpse that he gives us here is very simple. The kingdom grows. The kingdom grows. It multiplies exponentially. Jesus compared the kingdom to a mustard seed, a very small seed. If you've never seen one before, it's about the size of a sesame seed. Okay, so for a frame of reference, that's about how big it was. Now, Mustard plants don't actually become trees by normal definition. But once a seed is planted for a mustard plant, it grows rapidly in one season into a tree-like shrub. Okay, Plenty big enough for small birds to roost in its branches. Under the right conditions, in one single year, it can grow to about 9 or 10 feet tall. Just rapid growth. And Jesus' aside, he wasn't trying to give a botany lesson here. He was simply making a comparison between the mustard seed and the kingdom of God. The mustard seed started small, but it multiplied its mass quickly to many times its original size. Similarly, the kingdom of God started small, but multiplied quickly. And it's still growing to this day. Walt Kaiser says the kingdom of heaven is like that. It begins with Jesus and his small band of followers, hardly noticeable in the towns and cities of Palestine, let alone the Roman Empire. Roman historians do not even mention him. Yet he predicts that the kingdom will grow until it becomes something large and strong. What was this supposed to mean for the listener? The small nucleus the smallness of this nucleus of the kingdom of heaven was easy to ignore. One could listen to Jesus and say, Well, that was interesting, and turn aside to one's business. Yet the kingdom is not going to go away. It will become something large and strong. It wasn't going away. The kingdom started so insignificantly that it could have easily been missed, or ignored, or dismissed. But that was just the seed the seed that contained all the life and the DNA that an entire plant would need. And that seed would eventually become a tree that could not be ignored or dismissed any longer. You cannot listen to Jesus' words today and say, that was interesting, and turn aside again. Because his kingdom has grown large and strong and significant, and it will continue to grow until the day he returns. Now, if you've already become part of God's kingdom, here's the best part for you you are one such insignificant beginning. You are one such insignificant beginning of God's kingdom. You may feel small or insignificant or even useless, but it's like Jesus has planted a mustard seed in your heart. And the seed cannot help but grow into something of great significance. Everywhere the kingdom spreads, it grows with power, including your heart. Jesus can use each one of us in powerful ways for the glory of his kingdom. Not because of who we are. Don't get me wrong. All because of who he is. You can use any one of us. The a favorite song of mine sings. Little is much when God's in it. He changes the world with the seeds we sow." God may use a, a simple word of encouragement. A short prayer. Single act of service for someone, to totally change someone's life and extend his kingdom's reach further. God may use you, he may use me, the simple seeds to grow his tree. So if you haven't, join the kingdom yet, I'd urge you to do so today. Get under the lordship and the reign of Christ. Don't ignore it or dismiss it any longer. And if you have joined the kingdom, I encourage you to live as subjects of the kingdom daily. Jesus is our king. Okay? He is our king. We are in submission to him. So listen to him. Obey him. Serve him. And he can use your life in unbelievable ways. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid in sharing your faith with others. Don't be afraid, don't be hesitant to serve Christ, to step forward for Him, to serve Him in the church, to serve Him in the community. Don't be worried about what the future holds for you. Have faith. Because regardless of what we do, regardless of what other people do, regardless of what comes, the kingdom of God will keep growing. That's a guarantee. As Jesus concluded his talk, he gave one additional parable that makes a similar point to this. If the first parable referred to the growth of the kingdom, the second refers to its reach. And look what Jesus says as he concludes in verse 20. says, And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all Here's the key truth to understand here, and then we'll look at what this means, is the glory of God's kingdom will eventually reach the entire universe. One day, the glory of God's kingdom will permeate all that exists. Now, that statement doesn't fill you with the warmth of hope. don't know what will. If you didn't know it yet, the kingdom of God is unstoppable and undefeatable. You may choose to oppose or reject it today, but I warn you that if you do, one day it will defeat you. If you choose to accept and follow Jesus' reign today, that means you join the guaranteed winning side. It's going to keep growing. It's going to reach the universe. Jesus makes this powerful point with a fairly mundane illustration about bread and yeast. Okay? And read it one more time. It says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Now, three measures of flour was about 50 pounds of flour. So, this woman was making a really huge batch of bread. And she took a little bit of leaven or yeast and mixed it into the dough. And if you've ever baked bread before, you know that you don't need much yeast at all when you cook bread, right? Very little. In just a little bit, and it's going to spread out through the entire loaf of bread. And the whole loaf of bread will rise when the time comes. Again, The comparison was that the kingdom seemed small and insignificant, like yeast. But God was going to use the small beginnings to fill the earth with his glory. The kingdom would eventually reach everywhere. It would permeate the whole globe and universe. The extensive growth, really, it began with Jesus' life his death, his resurrection. And we can see the early stages of the kingdom spread in Scripture as the gospel expanded throughout the Roman Empire, the known world. J.C. Ryle summarized this incredible growth The early growth of the gospel this way, he said. In spite of persecution, opposition, and violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased. Year after year, its adherents became more numerous. Year after year, idolatry withered away before it. City after city, country after country, received the new faith. Church after church was formed in almost every quarter of the earth then known. Preacher after preacher rose up, and missionary after missionary came forward to fill the place of those who died. In a few hundred. Years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, the religion which began in the upper chamber at Jerusalem, had overrun the civilized world. The seed was growing, the yeast was spreading, the tree was coming up, the bread was starting to rise. And this gospel is still going forth in power to this day. If you don't believe me, you either haven't been informed or you haven't been paying attention. In many places around the world, the church is absolutely exploding. In China... India, Africa, South America, many other places. And it may not even be visible growth to us. We might not notice it, like yeast, invisibly working its way through bread. We don't see the spread, but wherever the gospel is preached, the kingdom advances. And as Philip Ryken reminds us, he says, Amazingly, all this growth, worldwide growth, comes from the one little seed of Christ's death on the cross and the kernel of life in his resurrection. It all sprung from that. you ever feel discouraged about the kingdom's growth and reach in the world? In your life? I know I do at times. Feel discouraged about it. I mean, you come to Christ for salvation and maybe you fully expect to see huge overnight progress, but when you don't, you get discouraged. How will you ever grow enough? How, how can you grow better? You get discouraged about that. Or, or you get distracted by some besetting sin in your life that you fight and fight and fight against, but you can't ever seem to conquer. Or you keep running into opposition when you share your faith with others. Friends or family members keep rejecting Jesus. And mourn about that, or you're discouraged by the lack of spiritual growth in your kids, or you're in a ministry where you're you're seeing very little or no fruit, and you, so you wonder what God is doing. Like, why don't we see fruit? Why don't we see growth? Or, or we don't see the, the places in our world where the church and the kingdom is expanding and growing. We only see the places of decline where churches seem to be stagnating or dying instead of growing. Whenever you feel this discouragement, whenever we feel this discouragement, it would do us well to remember Jesus' words here. The kingdom starts small. Kingdom starts small. Sometimes it grows slowly. Sometimes it's almost imperceptible. Can't see it at all. But nevertheless, it is growing. It is spreading. It is reaching. And one day, it's going to permeate the universe. So in your personal faith, your personal walk with Christ, remember remember that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In your ministry, in the church, in the, in the global scene, remember what the prophets declared. And they declared, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. God himself promised that the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Numbers 14, 21. It will be filled. God's glory will come. God himself promised this. And that's coming. Take hold of hope. Jesus will win. His kingdom will reign. Get ready for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to hold on to that hope. When we're discouraged... When we don't see how the kingdom is going forth, help us to see it. Help us to see how you're working in our lives, how you're working in our church, how you're working in our city, in our country, in our world. Pray that we would jump at opportunities to be involved in your work, to see your kingdom go forth. Help us to trust you, for you know what you're doing. And your light will shine for all eternity. Your glory will go forth. We thank you for that amazing truth, God. In Jesus' name, amen.